Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes, how do they go about exploring it further. Now, on today's episode, our guest is Jeremy Schiefling, and he is the founder of Break Into Tech. And this is a really simple but a very interesting idea. What he's trying to do is help people who do not have a technical background get a job in tech. And so far, many of the candidates that Jeremy has worked with have gone on to get jobs at very well-known companies such as Amazon and LinkedIn and Microsoft and many others. His company has been covered in well-known publications such as Forbes and Huffington Post. And he also serves as a coach for a number of students at Ross School of Business. In fact, he himself is a graduate of the Ross School of Business, Michigan University. So on today's episode, Jeremy will be sharing a lot of the things that he shares with his candidates, how you can structure your job search, how to figure out which job function is a good fit for you and a lot of other things. And you'll find that this episode is just filled with a lot of actionable nuggets that Jeremy shares. So I hope you will enjoy it. I think this is going to be a helpful episode for anyone who is interested in working in tech, but is not quite sure how to go about it. So without further ado, let's welcome Jeremy. Jeremy, hello. Welcome to the show. Hey, Sanai. Thanks so much for having me on today. Of course. Thank you so much for making the time. And I think what you're doing is very, very interesting. I'm sure a lot of people are very interested in this because there's so much demand for for getting into tech now. But if you do not have a technical background, then it can be a challenge, I guess. Uh, It depends a little bit on the role. So I'm glad that you're doing this and I'm glad that we have you on the podcast to talk about it. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here. This is definitely my personal passion as well as my profession. So excited to talk about it. Yeah. So why don't you give us a very quick introduction to what is Break Into Tech? Sure. So Break Into Tech is sort of a culmination of what I've experienced in my own career. Um, As someone who's got to start as a kindergarten teacher, started out in the nonprofit sector, and over a couple of years worked his way into the tech world, I realized that there's not a lot of resources out there to help people follow in those footsteps try to figure out how to break into tech, even from a non-technical background. And so I want to basically be a Sherpa to guide others on this adventure so they too can reach the summit. Yeah, so actually this is very interesting. And I did want to ask you what your background is, which you gave us a little bit of over there. So you were a kindergarten teacher and then you were working in nonprofit. That's correct. Wow. And then what was your first job in tech then? Yeah, so I had an internship at Apple where it was basically opening my eyes to the fact that, wow, this whole world that I thought was only for coders and data scientists has all these other roles that are open to lots of different people from around the world, but I had never been exposed to that before. And that's what sort of gave me this idea for breaking the tech. I see. And uh, if you don't mind sharing, what exactly was the, your role during your internship? Absolutely. So I was a product marketer for the iOS team there. And one of the things that really surprised me was the fact that there was even a job called product marketing. You know, I'd heard about marketing in general and Mad Men and things like that. But again, tech is such an interesting and unique world that there are all these roles from product marketing to product management, business development to corporate development and everything in between that folks on the outside don't know about, but they might actually be a really good fit for. 
Right. And so it was this uh, sort of, uh, was this a challenge for you, uh, getting a job at Apple? Or yeah, internship? so here's, here's the interesting thing, is it wasn't that much of a challenge once I realized a couple of key things. Number one, that there's not some sort of special um, birthright that some people have to be in the tech world and others don't have. So the fact that I was a kindergarten teacher didn't mean that I could never get into that world. And number two, the fact that I had a sort of non-traditional background, possibly a different perspective, a more creative perspective compared to some, actually gave me a leg up, mm. gave me differentiation in a pool of Me Too candidates. So I think once I sort of switched those from a deficit model to a surplus model, I started to get opportunities. Right. I, I think it's a very important point. What you're saying is that uh, a lot of people may just make an assumption that if I do not have a technical background, then I cannot work in tech. But that is not true at all. It depends a lot on the role of, I mean, of course, you probably cannot be an engineer unless you teach yourself. But a lot of other roles are still very much open to you and your background could actually be a, uh, an advantage. Absolutely. And here's the craziest part. I actually did some research on LinkedIn a couple of years ago and basically said, show me all the roles in the U.S. tech industry. So startups, big companies, engineers, non-engineers. After crunching the data, it wasn't just that there were some business roles, some non-technical roles. They were actually the majority of jobs in the tech sector. Something like two-thirds of jobs were outside of technology itself. And so I think that says, hey, there's a huge opportunity out there, but it's up to folks to go explore it and to seize that opportunity for themselves. That's interesting. Okay, so this is across all sized companies, not just startups, big, small, that, and medium. That's correct. Okay, okay. All right, so uh, can you also give us a quick snapshot of where your company stands today? So, you know, I was just looking at your website and you, you now work as a coach with uh, students at Ross School of Business, I believe. And, and, you know, you've been featured by a number of publications. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about where your company stands today. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, having run the business for a couple of years now, um, I'm pretty confident in the fact that the methods that I've used in my own career and I've coached hundreds of others on really do work. And it has to do less with, again, learning to code or learning very sort of specific technical skills and more about figuring out where you belong in this crazy world and then positioning yourself to win those jobs. And so basically, I encourage anyone, you know, whether you're a kindergarten teacher or an architect or a chef, but you have a passion for this space, to check it out at breakinto.tech and then basically see, hey, what's the right pathway for me? How can I ultimately get into the tech world if that's where my passion lies? Yeah, as I understand, a lot of the people that you worked with have now ended up with jobs at very well-known companies such as Amazon and Microsoft and LinkedIn and many others. That's right. Yeah, it's been definitely one of the more gratifying experiences of my career up there with being a kindergarten teacher, actually. <laughs> to see people sort of make it from, oh, I don't know if I belong there, I don't know if I can do it, to actually signing the contract and starting in these jobs that they're really excited about. Cool. All right, so then let's try and understand some of your methods then. So let's say I am currently a grad student or maybe someone who's relatively early in my career and I'm, I, have, I don't have a technical background, maybe I have an MBA or something else. How would you suggest... I structure my job search process in tech. If you can break that down into stages, uh, that'll be wonderful. And then we can go deeper. Absolutely. So let me just start by laying out sort of the four key steps, and then we can talk about each. Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is not to focus on the tech industry in general, or even on companies that you really like, 
to focus on what you can do with those companies and specifically identify a role where you can bring your passion and your skills to bear every single day. Because I think if you can sort of start with that foundation, recruiters, hiring managers, people on the inside are going to open their doors to you because you can actually provide value. You're not just the fanboy. Mm-hmm. So that's the first step. Mm-hmm. Second step is all about positioning yourself to fit into that world, to fit into that specific role. So for example, if you say, hey, I could be really great as a salesperson in the tech space, make sure that your LinkedIn profile, your resume, your cover letter, all of that screams sales, not just someone who wants to work in tech. Once you're in that situation, the third step, I think, is to really be systematic about your application process. Don't just apply sort of willy-nilly, once in a while, hope for the best. Instead, turn your application game into a machine and make sure that it's powered not just by jobs, but also by referrals. Mm. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think when it's time for the interview stage, again, don't get caught up in that classic tech trap of saying, oh, I've got to learn SQL, I've got to learn to code before I can even interview. Instead, focus on the really important human elements of the human interviewer at the end of the day, what do they care about? Typically, it's only two things. Can you do the job and would they want to do it with you? And if you can master those two things in your interview prep, you can get the job, you can break into tech. <laughs> All right, you make it sound so simple. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so then let's go deeper into each of them. I, I think the first step uh, in particular is probably very, very important, identifying the role. So can you give us an overview of the various roles that a person with a non-technical background can consider in tech? Yeah, and this is sort of that initial aha moment I was talking about when I got to Apple. Mm-hmm where there's probably 10 to a dozen different roles that are hired for thousands of times a year just in the U.S. alone um, that are open to non-technical folks. And I never heard of the vast majority of them. And the way to really think about them is to think about them on a spectrum. So if you think about different jobs as being more analytical, so working on your own, crunching data, trying to come up with insights and recommendations, all the way to interpersonal, so working with other people, working collaboratively, trying to influence people, Um, And then try to figure out sort of where you lie on that scale in terms of your personal preferences. So do you like working with data? Do you like working with people? Do you like a mix? You can start to figure out which of the various tech roles fit onto that spectrum. Hmm. So on the more analytical side, um, there's roles like business analyst, where you're using SQL to pull data and sort of analyze it. There's roles like business operations, where you're again getting access to lots and lots of data and you're crunching it to develop strategic recommendations for a company, all the way to corporate development, where you're looking at financials and trying to sort of build valuation models potentially for mergers and acquisitions. So all very analytical roles. On the other side of the spectrum, the interpersonal pull, there are roles like business development, often called biz dev, which is all about building partnerships. How can you forge relationships with other companies? Similar also to sales, where you're going out into the world, trying to influence others to purchase something from your organization. And of course, roles like HR, where you're working very closely with teammates and potential hires for the company to get them involved. Mm -hmm. And there are roles... Oh yeah, go go ahead, Sonali. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Continue. Oh yeah, and there's some roles in the middle. Um, These are the classic tech roles of product management, product marketing, customer success, where you really have a mix of those things. Yes, you have to be very analytical, but you also have to work cross-functionally with others to get things done. Right, right. And... I think I think for the most part, well, maybe maybe not so much. I mean, I I think people 
today want to work the most in in the middle of that scale as you just defined it across analytical and interpersonal yeah although i will say that like occasionally you meet people who spike as they say yeah. really strongly in one yeah. area or the other they say you know i'm just sick of going to meetings all the time i just wish i could just go crazy on excel <laughs> or man i don't want to be confined in the office all day i want to be out there on the street in either of those cases it might be okay be a business analyst or be a salesperson but again, it's all about knowing yourself. Right, right. No, and I'm glad that you're bringing up these roles in, uh, you know, on LED especially. We've covered a lot of the a lot of these roles, just sort of interviewing people who've done these jobs. So that should be helpful to anyone who's listening. Uh, but let's say that I am trying to assess fit with any of these roles, right? So you've given us a very good framework in terms of how to think about uh, what these roles are like. Now, how do I assess fit? Yeah, great question. So I think it's a couple steps. I think first thing you want to do is figure out what these roles actually do all day. I think one of the biggest traps people can fall in, uh, fall into when it comes to the tech world is because these roles aren't widely known, people haven't grown up knowing about them necessarily, it's easy to glamorize them. Say, oh, being a product manager is like being the CEO of a company. It's going to be so sexy. What you really want to do is talk to as many actual product managers who are doing this job every day and figure out what those days are like. Is it as exciting as, oh, I'm in the corner office and I'm calling all the strategic shots? Or am I, am I in the trenches, you know, working with engineers, trying to solve a really tricky bug or trying to get through a tough resourcing um, sort of constraint? Mm -hmm. Because if you can start to figure out what it actually feels like day to day, you can start to imagine whether you're going to feel happy in that role or not. So that's the first piece. I think once you compare that to what you actually like doing, so if you look back at your past career, again, whether you were a teacher or an architect or whatever, and you can pull out some of those flow moments when you were like, oh my goodness, I was so immersed in what I was doing, I literally lost track of time. And then say, hey, what was I doing in that moment when I was in that moment of, of flow? And which of these jobs that I've just outlined are going to give me the most kinds of similar moments, whether they're analytical or interpersonal? Right, right. You know, but but it's it's is there is there a way, do you think that uh you know, I, I can definitely talk to a lot of people and that should definitely give me a fair, a good sense for what the job is like. Are there places where I can try and get some sort of hands-on experience? Yeah, great question. So I think one of the more aggressive, um, though definitely time-consuming strategies is to actually just start doing some of these jobs. Hmm. So let's say, for instance, that like me, maybe you were a kindergarten teacher and you said, hey... I think I could probably be pretty good at marketing. It feels similar in some ways in terms of trying to influence other people, understand other people, but I've never done it in a professional capacity. Well, what if you took your sort of most exciting company and said, hey, could I do a marketing project for them? Even if it's just purely on my own or even if it's purely on a volunteer basis. And you might actually say, okay, um, if I want to help an ed tech startup, for instance, um, get their product into the hands of as many teachers and families as possible. What's a marketing plan I might to get, put together? Who's the audience? What are the channels I can use to reach them? What are I going to tell them? How am I going to measure my results? Right. And as you start to do that kind of project, you start to say, hey, this is what it actually feels like to do this role. Am I enjoying this? Or is it a total turnoff? And if you realize at that point that the role is just not right for you, You've saved yourself years of pain <laughs> by simulating an experience ahead of time. Right, 
right no i i think i think that's a very very good idea and especially if if you think about startups they are always so hungry for resources and help so if you want you can if if you have good ideas about what they can be doing you can reach out to them suggest things that uh, they could be doing and just work on it yourself and this way you help that startup you figure out yourself if you want to do that kind of thing or not and you know even if nothing happens you you can always add it to your resume uh, which will be helpful as you go about recruiting in the future absolutely and i'll just give a real example when i was at linkedin i was a product marketer but there was a young man right out of undergrad who was doing our sales rotational program and it turned out that he wasn't really infatuated with sales Again, had a hard time to really simulate it ahead of time. Mm. But he really wanted to get into marketing. And so he approached me and said, hey, could I do this project for you? Could I actually lend a hand? And just like you said, even at a large company like LinkedIn, I could always use more resources, more bandwidth. Right. So I took him on kind of as an apprentice. And he used that project to figure out that A, marketing was right for him. And B, as a piece of his portfolio to ultimately get a marketing job. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so great. So this was sort of the first stage of the, of the job search process that you described, identifying the role. So A, figure out where on the spectrum do you lie, analytical versus interpersonal, and then assess fit. And so at the end of this stage, I guess you've now figured out one or two job profiles that you're interested in. Right. So right. then you can sort of move into that positioning stage mm-hmm. where, again, using the laser focus that you've built in that first stage, you can now go to your LinkedIn profile and to your resume and really hammer home that I'm a marketer or a product manager or a business analyst. Because like one of the things that I see so many would-be techies do is they say in their LinkedIn headline, passionate about tech, open to anything, <laughs> or future product manager slash product marketer slash salesperson slash business analyst. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going were... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, okay, so, yeah, yeah, no, not to cut you off, but I I want to break this down a little bit because I think this is an area which, uh, you know, some people are naturally very good at and some people struggle with it. I think I myself struggle with it. So this is a learning moment for me too. Uh, When we talk about positioning yourself, first and foremost, what are the pieces that I need to be thinking about as far as positioning myself is concerned? So is it my LinkedIn profile and my resume? Are those the two things or are there some other areas also? Yeah, good question. I would say your LinkedIn profile in some ways is your most important piece of the puzzle um, in this day and age because you're not only going to use it to apply, you're also going to use it to network. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about referrals in a little bit, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to reach out to someone either on LinkedIn or off LinkedIn, but regardless, they're going to look you up on LinkedIn. And so because it's your public resume these days, you want to make sure that it screams whatever function you've chosen as opposed to that wishy-washy positioning we were just talking about got it yeah so linkedin is the most important and then i guess your resume is uh, uh comes close because that's what you use to apply that's right so at least until someone comes up with a way to totally make it obsolete the resume is still relevant right and then i think a sort of a stretch thing could be that you may have a website or a blog where you are you know, maybe talking about certain things. Let's say you're really interested in marketing, just sharing your thoughts on things that you like about what's happening in marketing or some some latest thing that you have an opinion on. That could also be something that you include uh, both on your LinkedIn profile and your resume. For sure. And in fact, that would be a great place to host some of that portfolio work we we're just talking about right. and showcase what you've actually accomplished already. 
Right. So then let's talk about the LinkedIn profile. How, and maybe you can take an example of one of the jobs, um, you know, maybe business operations or biz dev or, or product marketing, if, if that's what you're most comfortable with. And how would I position myself to be well suited for one of these jobs on my LinkedIn? What what should I be thinking about? Yeah. So first, first thing I would say actually is don't overthink it. Um, I've seen a lot of people get a little too creative when it comes to LinkedIn. And what they don't realize is that there are two audiences that they're trying to reach. Number one is absolutely the recruiter, but number two is also the algorithm. And by that, I mean the fact that if a recruiter goes on LinkedIn today and says, hey, I want to find product marketers for my tech company, um, they're going to search product marketing manager. And so if your um, LinkedIn profile says, you know, John Hamm looks like Don Draper, marketing abilities, <laughs> blah, 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 all this creative stuff, but it doesn't actually include the words product marketing manager, mm. you're not going to appear on their radars. Mm. Um, so it's important um, to really be very sort of um, specific in terms of matching the job descriptions. So if you can say, hey, I want to do product marketing and I found 10 job descriptions in that space that I'm really excited about and notice that they're all sort of titled the same thing, again, product marketing manager or business operations associate or whatever it might be, make sure that same phrase is in your headline on your LinkedIn profile because your headline actually has the most weight of any piece of copy on your entire profile because it's the most character limited and therefore can't be gamed. Oh, wait. So I, uh, before you carry on, this is this is very, very important. So I, I want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. So one, you're saying that your profile should clearly have the keywords that the recruiter would be using when they're searching for potential candidates. And so what you're saying is that in order to find what those keywords are, just look at 10 or 20 odd job descriptions for that particular role, see what they're using in their job titles and use those keywords in your profile, right? So that, you, you nailed it, exactly. So that's one. And two, you're saying that, okay, so the, the next question is, okay, where do I put these keywords? And you're saying put them in the headline of your LinkedIn profile. So what do you mean by headline? Is that the name? or? Yeah, sorry about that. It's a little bit of inside LinkedIn jargon. <laughs> so the headline is basically that sentence that appears next to your name and picture everywhere on the site. So, oh, so that's your job title. Yeah, typically LinkedIn will recommend whatever your current job title is. Hmm. But like here's a danger for students. If your most recent experience on LinkedIn says, you know, student at the University of Pennsylvania, and that becomes your headline, well, again, the recruiter searching for product marketing manager will never find you, even if she's looking for, for students, because what she wants is people with that specific focus. And so that's why it's important. You don't just focus on where you've been in the past, but you actually focus aspirationally on where you want to go, because that's where the recruiters are looking. I see. Okay. So then what do you suggest the headline should be? Yeah, absolutely. So um, ideally, if you're already in the space or have already sort of repositioned yourself for the space, I think you, the headline can be as simply um, the job title that you're looking for. Product marketing manager, business operations manager, uh, business development, partnership uh, lead, whatever. Um, because that way you match those keywords. Um if you feel comfortable doing so, you can definitely build on that by including, you know, something um, that might be a little bit appealing in terms of a big brand that you've worked for, or including a really important skill. So, like product marketing manager with a specialty in e-commerce, for instance, that's a place that you really want to double down on. But I would always start with the job title itself 
because that's what the recruiters are going to search for. Oh, I see. Okay. And okay. So, so you, would you say former product marketing manager or will you just say product marketing manager? Yeah, I would say product marketing manager, so long as that's where you intend to be in the future. Hmm. Okay. And then would you say comma student at UPenn? That's right. So if you are typically applying for companies that want to hire people straight out of school, hmm. in the tech world's case, that's typically the biggest tech companies, then that's great because that's a feather in your cap. However, this is the tricky part about the tech world, startups, especially smaller ones, aren't always in love with hiring MBAs right away or students for that matter. And so um, if it might become sort of a scarlet letter, on the other hand, instead of a feather in your cap, <laughs> you might, you might want to actually not make that a key part of your position. I see. I see. This is very, very interesting. Where else do you recommend I should be including these keywords in my LinkedIn profile? Yeah. So let's talk through sort of the three key areas. So we talked through the headline, which is number one. Mm -hmm. The number two most valuable from a LinkedIn SEO perspective is your summary. So that's sort of that like couple of paragraphs of text that you can include right below um, your picture and your headline on your profile. So typically you'll see someone say, hey, I have five to 10 years of experience, blah, blah, blah. Here are my specialties. And so you want to make sure that the job title is again included there. Ideally, some skills and supporting evidence. So what I always like to see there are um, product marketing manager with expertise in these areas as demonstrated by these three career highlights. Hmm. Hmm. And that's because while the machine might not care about the beautiful writing, the human at the end of the machine who has now seen you on their LinkedIn search is going to come to your profile and they have to be impressed on a human level. Right. So if you can give them a really quick summary, highlight reel, if you will, of the best things you've done in this space, that'll help them immediately say, hey, this person belongs on my radar right away. Yep. Yep. No, absolutely. So so you said one is the headline. Mm -hmm. Next, you have the description or the, the, the summary. Um, and then was there a third area? Yeah. The third area is in your experience. Um, a lot of the students that I've coached will often say, oh, Jeremy, I feel kind of weird putting my resume bullets on my LinkedIn. Isn't that duplicative? But the power of having all those great resume bullets that you probably spend time working on on LinkedIn is that they're actually working for you constantly. Hmm. You could have the world's greatest resume, but if it's only sitting on your hard drive and no recruiter in the world can see it, <laughs> it's got no value for you. Yeah. Whereas being on LinkedIn, can, you can be found 24-7 around the world. That's tremendous value. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I know people who still don't even have a LinkedIn profile. So I think that's a big mistake. LinkedIn is a super, super helpful tool. Totally. Okay, so then in positioning yourself, uh, I think we've covered everything on LinkedIn profile. Is there anything else that you think people should be aware of? Yeah, I think the one tricky thing I'll mention is that let's say in that initial stage, you just can't decide between roles. Hmm. You know, Maybe you say, well, product management and product marketing both sound good. And it's true that there are some similarities. Right. So in that case, you know, you may actually want to start by exploring both roles simultaneously. And so the tricky piece is on LinkedIn, you can typically only choose one area of focus mm. because again, it may feel a little bit sort of um, a little bit mixed up, if you will, to have both things listed at once. But the beauty of the resume, of course, in comparison to LinkedIn is that you can have two totally different versions. So what I encourage folks to do is not necessarily to have a different resume for every company or for every job that you apply for, because that can get totally out of hand. But if you decide to go after two functional areas, make sure that you at least have a different resume version for each one, because nothing looks worse than getting a resume 
where it says, I am interested in working in the tech space or I want to do product marketing and product management because that just gives me a sense that you don't have focus. And if I'm a recruiter, I want the exact right person not right. the person who's only 50% right. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so we'll definitely get to the resume. I think there are a couple of things that we should discuss on the resume overall. Uh, but I think as far as LinkedIn is concerned, basically what you're saying is that, A, of course, your LinkedIn profile should be up to date. And B, you need to make sure that you're including the right keywords in your headline and then the description and then, of course, your your background and experience. That's right. And there are definitely other things you can do in terms of making sure you have a great profile photo getting recommendations, et cetera, et cetera. But I would say that the things that we've talked about already are the biggest sort of 80-20 wins. They're going to give you the biggest bang for your buck, and that's where I would focus your efforts. Right, right. So then coming to your resume, um, what would be, and, and you know, I, I think we, you, you, could, we, you could spend hours talking about how to <laughs> optimize your resume, so I don't want to spend too much time there. Uh, but very quickly, when you say that try and create a resume customized for the role that you're applying for, can you share some examples of what that customization might look like? So if, if let's say we take a kindergarten teacher, like your profile, right? A kindergarten yeah. teacher who then worked in nonprofit. Now, let's say you're a student at Ross and you're applying for a product marketing role. Can you share an example of a potential resume bullet point, which you'll phrase differently uh, for a PMM versus a PM job? Sure. Yeah. So I think it's all about understanding what the outcomes are that are important in each role. Because a lot of times what I'll see with bullet points is that it's all focused on here's my responsibility and not actually what I accomplished. And the tech world is so fast moving and resource constrained that they are extremely results focused. And if your resume doesn't match that, you're going to be in trouble. So to give you the example, when I was a kindergarten teacher, I would often talk in my resume about, you know, I um, lifted student grade point averages or created a great classroom culture or all these nice things that were very relevant for the education space but didn't speak to the outcomes that a product manager or a product marketer care about. Hmm. When I applied for product marketing jobs, I took the exact same stories in terms of working with students and working with families and I focused on marketing outcomes, namely influence. So for example, I talked about the fact that I created a classroom blog not just for pedagogical reasons but to actually drive engagement with families. And I could point to the fact that I had 95% of my audience engaged on a weekly basis um, just by creating this sort of classroom community online. Interesting. And that's speaking the language of tech marketing, which is obsessed with the idea of daily active users and weekly active users. So even if it was a very different industry and space, I could say, hey, I understand the lingo, I understand the focus, and I've done that already. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that that's a very, very good example. And I mean, I know that you did not apply for a PM job, but if you were to take the same story and spin a product management thing to it, how would you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So again, if I was focusing on the idea of a blog as being sort of something that we've a uh, product developed, if you will, or product managed, mm-hmm. I might talk about the fact that it had really high sort of satisfaction uh, with the families. So for instance, I did survey the families at a couple points in the year and not that I even knew the term at the time, but it actually had an NPS in retrospect of something like you know 60 or 70. Um, right. And for a product manager who cares about those kinds of metrics as a benchmark for how successful their products are in terms of customer satisfaction, that would be a way to talk credibly about having done some similar work. Right. Yeah, that, that's very, very helpful. So basically what you're saying is 
once you a identify your job and then b you need to understand your the, the job that you're applying for well enough to be able to say okay these are the things that this particular profile is accountable for so what is it in the case of marketing what is it in the case of product management and then demonstrate those outcomes in your resume your stories could exactly be the same but that's what's going to help make the resume stand out and also show that even though you might not have a technical background you have the relevant experience and skills Absolutely. You said it better than I did. <laughs> all right. So, all right. So then second stage, positioning yourself, that's done. Is there anything else in that stage? I think those are the most important things. I think it's easy to get caught up in spending weeks and months working on your resume and your LinkedIn, but just make sure that you're matching the job descriptions and the world that you want to get into and then move on to the next stage. All right. So then the next one was a systematic approach to your application process. So what does that mean? Yeah. So I think it means taking a lot of sort of the analysis paralysis out of the job search process and putting as much of it on autopilot. And what I mean by that is don't get into the habit of trying to hunt for jobs manually. Make sure everything is alert-based, whether you use Indeed or LinkedIn or Glassdoor or AngelList for the startup space. All those have alert features where on a daily basis, they'll say, here are the jobs that match your search requirements and just let that come to you. That's the first step. Hmm. Then what I always recommend is that people make a habit of applying to a certain number of jobs each day and applying right away to the jobs as they're posted. One advantage I've seen on the inside of, of tech companies is that a job application that's received on the very first day the job description is posted is going to get a lot more attention than one that comes in on the 10th day. Hmm. I think it's just human nature. It's sort of that Christmas morning feeling right. of I'm excited to see you know a new application if I'm the hiring manager, but after a couple of weeks, I'm totally bored of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you're saying apply on the very first day? If possible. Um, you know, if Occasionally, if it's like your dream job and you really want to nail it, you might want to spend an extra 24 hours just making sure everything's perfect. But right. in general, there is an advantage to applying earlier. Right. And I guess that's where alerts can be very, very helpful because you'll be notified as soon as the job opening is up. That's right. And on LinkedIn, you know, I think if you have a premium account, um, you can actually see like how many people have applied already. And you'll notice that within a, a week or two, a lot of jobs have hundreds of applications. Mm. But within the first 24 hours, it's typically just a handful. Right, 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 right. And then if I am applying within the first 24 hours, then does that mean that I'm simply applying on the website and sort of filling out the form and hitting submit or am I doing something else? Also? Yeah, so that that is what you're doing. And I know people are going to say, oh, Jeremy, like everyone knows about the, <laughs> internet, you know, job search uh, black box. You just put these applications in and you never hear back. And I totally understand that. <laughs> but I want to explain my strategy here. Um, part of it is that there's an aspect to momentum in human psychology of if you can get in that rhythm of applying quickly, getting them in the door, you're just going to feel like, hey, I've, I've accomplished something. I've sort of planted my flag. But the other thing that's important is a lot of times people say, well, I know referrals are important. And we'll talk about that in a second. So I'm not going to apply until I get a referral. But what typically happens is because referrals can be tough to get, people wait around for weeks and weeks and weeks, and the referral never comes through, and now the job is filled, and they just sat on the sidelines the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's either or, like either apply online or get a referral. I think it's actually both. Because what I've seen is that even people who have applied on the first day and been rejected right away can get pulled out of the fire, so to speak, if someone on the inside puts in a good word for them. And so it almost gives you two shots at a job 
to apply online and then get the referral and just do one or the other. Interesting. So what you're saying is that it, it doesn't have to be done at the same time. You can first apply and then work on your referral and then the referral can it basically internally the referral gets added to your application. And of course, if there's a referral, there is a much greater chance that your application is going to be looked at and considered. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's very. That's a very good tip because I, I think mostly people think that you have to do it at the same time, which is why they they, they wait around. Uh, what's a, what would you recommend is the process that one should follow for getting a referral? Because if you know someone at the company, then of course you can ask them. Uh, but let's say you don't. Is there any recommendation you have in that situation? Yeah, definitely. So, one of the things that I think becomes a hang up for people is exactly what you just mentioned. They say, oh, I looked on LinkedIn and I don't know anyone there. Okay, I can't get a referral. And that is absolutely a trap because there are so many other ways in. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, You can say, okay, maybe I don't know anyone there, but maybe I know someone, um, or excuse me, maybe I can find someone there who went to my school, whether it's my undergraduate university or my graduate university. Um, Be open-minded about that. Also note, that LinkedIn often categorizes graduate schools separately from overall universities. So for example, the University of Michigan and the Ross School of Business are considered different entities, so it's important to search both. And that's going to give you access to right. you know, potentially hundreds or even thousands of people you can talk to. Right. Um, look for people who have other shared affiliations. Do they work at a former company where you used to work? So maybe um, in some cases, I've seen people get referrals from people who did Teach for America with them. So not the same school necessarily, but the same organization, the same former employer, and they feel that sense of shared affiliation. Maybe they volunteered at Habitat for Humanity, and that's something you can search for on LinkedIn. And then, of course, there's that really powerful and exponential piece of friends of friends. (laughs) So you might not know someone who works there directly, but someone that you know may know someone. And that's where LinkedIn is really powerful. It's showing you the second degree connections, as they're called. So you can really say, I might only know 1,000 people, but those 1,000 people know 100,000 more people. And that gives me way more entree into this world. Right, right. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree with you that the more you just think about all the different things that you've done in the past, and more often than not, you'll find some sort of common thing, whether it's an activity or some volunteering thing or an organization that you were a part of, which can help you connect with someone. But my, my other question for you is that, you know, these days, people get so many referral requests, right? And and so if I know someone, of course, I'll be more than happy to make a referral. But if you don't know someone, and let's say they went to the same school, or you, you were part of some organization together, how do you suggest the candidate should frame that request? And what kind of referral should they be expecting? You know, it, it can be a very, very enthusiastic referral, as an example, or, or it could be something else. So how, what do you think the, expect, the right expectation over there is? Yeah, so I'm going to give some controversial advice here. And this is something I've seen work in my own job search. Okay. Which is, I think people typically have this vision of, unless this person is already a good friend, I kind of have to wine and dine them. I have to reach out and reach out again and have a million conversations. And I think that can certainly work. Like I've seen in the NBA world, People build relationships with alumni a year in advance of the need. (laughs) And then because they have that great relationship, it's a lot easier to ask for a referral. (laughs) However, I'm going to be realistic. Most people 
don't know where they're going to be in a year, let alone the jobs they're applying for, let alone where they're going to need a referral. And so uh, because, you know, human nature is what it is and people often need things at the last second, I think a very winning strategy that, again, I've employed personally is to go to that person and just put them in your shoes. Say, hey, you know, um, as someone who's a fellow Teach for America alum or a fellow Habitat for Humanity volunteer or a fellow friend of, of Sonali's, um, just wanted to let you know that I was super excited to come across your profile. Um, seems like you've done some really cool stuff. And I'm really passionate about this particular role. Here's why I think I'd be good at it. And what you're doing is you're kind of saying, hey, if you refer me, it's not like putting in an application for a crazy person where you're going to look really bad. It's actually a total slam dunk where you're going to be helping out someone from the shared tribe, right. from the same sort of um, common source of belonging, if you will, at a very deeply human level. And all I'm asking for is, you know, put, you know, share my resume with the recruiter based on the information that I'm sharing with you. And hey, I would love to catch up with you at some point, maybe even buy you dinner if I get the job at the company. Right. And I know that sounds like relatively sort of transaction or relatively quick compared to the wine and dine approach. But I would suspect that I got somewhere between a 30 and 50% response rate just based on going out like that and saying, hey, I could be really good for your organization. I could help your organization. And oh, by the way, we have this in common. Would you be willing to put my name in? So I think people should give it a shot before they give up and say, I can't get a referral. Right, right. And, but I think I, I would want to highlight some some of the things that you just did there, which is that, of, of course, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, being too idealistic to try and build a relationship for a year in advance and knowing what, where, where, what you're going to need a year later. Uh, but if, even if you are reaching out to someone who you do not really know, there's just some sort of common, some common thing which connects you with that person you are still framing your request in a very, very polite way. And you're also demonstrating how you are a good referral. So it, it's not just, you know, hey, Jeremy, uh, I also went to Ross. Can you refer me to XYZ? Like, if you're going to write just that, chances are that that person may not respond. Would you agree with that? That's right. And I think one of the things, it's probably a dangerous assumption on my part, is people feel comfortable writing these very diplomatic messages. But it is so important to be tactful. Like one thing I didn't mention in my example there is I always say, you know, totally no worries if you don't feel comfortable doing so. Absolutely won't have hurt feelings or anything like that. To let them know there's no pressure, there's no expectation, and to be as polite and diplomatic as possible. And I think when you approach it that way, you come off as a good guy or a good person, people are more willing to do you a favor than if you're brusque and too direct. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Because I have sometimes received requests where it sounds as if it's almost like like it's their birthright that I recommend them. <laughs> and I and I don't even know the person. So it's like, well, <laughs> at least people like. So, uh, yeah, all right. Okay, so then be systematic about your application process. Is there anything else that, that we should talk about here? Yeah, two quick points. Number one is, in general, I recommend applying pretty broadly. And the reason for that is not that you necessarily want to settle for a job that you're not excited about, but... What I've seen happen is at the later stages of the process, when you're either being interviewed or about to get an offer, having lots of other irons in the fire just gives you leverage and it gives you momentum. And lots of companies respond really quickly to someone who has other offers and other opportunities right. compared to the candidate who says, oh, I'm all in for you and I have no other opportunities cooking right now. Right. So just from the, the sheer sort of protect your candidacy and give yourself leverage, I would say apply pretty broadly. And then the last piece is, if you absolutely cannot get a referral, 
think about just reaching out to the hiring manager directly. You know, especially for smaller companies where it's easier to guess, okay, this person's the director of product or the director of marketing, so they manage the product managers or the product marketers. If you have a really good case to make and can, again, point to a piece of portfolio work that's really astounding, just go to them directly and, again, make your case in a diplomatic and friendly way. You'd be surprised how many folks actually respond positively to that because at the end of the day, your incentives are aligned. You want a great job where you can really kick butt, and they want a person who can do a great job and kick butt for them. And if you can demonstrate that over email, you can often turn that into an interview. Right, right. No, that's a very good point because there are definitely times when you're just not able to get a referral. Uh, So just reaching out because the worst case scenario is that they will just not respond to your email, which is fine. But in the off chance that they do and they notice your work and they like it, I mean, that's, that's, that's probably the best thing that could happen even better than a referral. Totally. Okay. And yeah, and I do want to highlight the other thing that you mentioned that how if you have multiple job offers, you can actually use that as a negotiation tactic and, you know, try and get more compensation or whatever else you're interested in. So uh, that's a good strategy to have anyway. Okay. So that was the third stage. And then the fourth stage is the interview where you mentioned that there are basically two things to think about that, um, actually, why don't you talk about it? What to think about in the interview stage? Yeah. Yeah, And again, I'll start off with this sort of classic trap of people who are preparing for interviews, especially in industries that they're not familiar with, like tech, tend to take a very prescriptive approach. They try to find all the possible interview questions on Glassdoor and from friends and just sort of cram for them as much as possible. Okay, I have all my answers ready. And that process inevitably fails because, you know, uh, every company is going to be different. Every interviewer is going to be different. They're not just going to give you the same interview questions that you already prepared for. And because you're have such a fragile process that's built on the exact questions that you plan for, you're going to have sort of a crash and burn experience in the interview room, which is not fun. <laughs> so instead of that sort of inflexible approach, take a more flexible humanistic approach, which is say, okay, what does it feel like to be on the other side of the table? And even if you've never been an interviewer yourself, you can start to imagine that if I'm going to hire someone from my team, I need someone who can do the job first and foremost, because I don't want to have to sort of you know, pull up the slack for them or find excuses for them. And then number two, if I'm going to spend more time with this person every day than I'm spending with my own family, I better like them. I better <laughs> want to spend time with them. Yeah. And so if you can nail it on both, uh, both counts there as far as competence and warmth, and there's actually some sociological work in terms of this is the way humans make judgments about all other humans. Um, and you can show off that, hey, I know what I'm talking about and I'd be a great person to work with you're going to tend to get the job more often than not versus the person who's only prepared to answer robotically a certain, a certain set of questions but can't demonstrate the warmth, can't demonstrate the general competence. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so the second piece about, you know, do, will I enjoy working with this person and just be spending so much time with them, that's, I guess, more interpersonal and that you should just be more friendly and be warm and confident. Uh, but the first piece, which is, can you do the job what would be the key areas that someone would think about? So for example, if you take product marketing, uh, you know, you might want to think a little bit about marketing itself, but then you might also want to think a little bit about what the company's product is, maybe have some broader understanding of what's happening in that space overall, what companies are doing. So what areas should the candidate prep on? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if you have limited time, the absolute number one thing to focus on is what you would actually do in that job. So to the extent that you can glean from the job description or from talking to people on the inside, here are the team's goals. 
here's what matters to them. Here's what they have to get done. And actually build out a plan either um, in PowerPoint or in your mind as far as how you would tackle that. Just having that level of fluency and creativity surrounding their challenges is not only going to help you answer the specific questions of what would you do in this role? How would you help us? But it's also going to get you thinking about all the right things, about their industry, about their competitors, about their product and their features. So I think that's a really nice way to sort of galvanize your process. If you want to go above and beyond that, I think there are two sets of data to think about. I think number one, you want to think about the company, both in terms of the past and the present, as well as the future. So look at Wikipedia to understand their past. Um, Look at um, TechMeme to understand what's happening with them right now, which is a great aggregator for tech tech news. So techmeme.com. And then, you know, set up Google alerts and things like that to figure out what's coming down the pike, as well as looking at things like their 10K report if they're a public company to understand, you know, what they're predicting for the future. Right. And then also do the same for yourself. Like, think about your experiences in terms of the skills they're looking for. So if they say, I need someone who's incredible at cross-functional work or is incredible about data analysis, find stories from your own path that fit into those skills and make sure you have those ready to go. So when you want to demonstrate your competence, you're not scrambling for a story. You have a great reserve to pull from. Yeah, absolutely. This is so awesome, Jeremy. Honestly, I think this is the most detailed account of how to find a job that I've heard in tech or otherwise. Uh, this is super, super helpful. What What do you think, actually, before I ask this question, I, I don't think I have any additional questions for the interview stage, but um, is there anything else that we should be touching upon here? Yeah, I just want to emphasize that warmth piece because I know it can seem like wishy-washy, like, oh, yeah, of course, be likable. But there are things you can actually do to help with that. Mm. I think number one, and this is so basic, is just like bring positive energy into that room because one of the things that humans do very naturally and subconsciously is they mimic each other. And I've actually seen people tank an interview just by bringing sort of negative energy or anxious energy into the room because then the hiring manager starts to absorb that themselves. Hmm. Um, And the way that you prepare for that is by having someone who's like a really, really good friend, so good that they can call you on all your stuff, just (laughs) practice with you and just say, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? (laughs) And regardless of the words coming out of your mouth, if your body language and your energy are just radiating negativity and they give you that feedback, you'll be way more prepared than just walking in and hoping for the best. So even though warmth can feel kind of um, a little bit out there, approach it in the same way you'd approach any interview prep, we practice, practice, practice. Right, right. No, I, I really like that. And uh, I, I, I don't know, I, I can't remember, there's a TED Talk on, uh, on fake it till you make it. And it, uh, it yes. I think I think it's by Amy Curry, who is a professor at HBS, and she talks about how your body language can actually influence your thoughts, and not not just the other way around. So she talks about how you can how there are these power postures that you can do, which will help you feel more confident. So you can do them in the bathroom before you go for the interview. That's right. Whatever it takes, go in there and have them have them walk out saying, "Hey, I want to spend more time with that person." Right. 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 So throughout this process, I and mean, now you, you've coached so many candidates, do you, uh, do you see any common stumbling blocks or mistakes that, uh, that people tend to make? Sure, yeah. So I think I've mentioned a bunch of them. I will mention sort of three higher level ones that I see across the tech world. First one is that you make yourself a commodity, by which I mean people tend to try to want to become 
the median of all applicants. So play it safe, copy language from other resumes, use a generic cover letter template they found on the internet somewhere. And the problem with that is that at least in the tech world, as far as I've seen, people who are differentiated, who are sort of luxury and premium products are the ones who get the jobs, not the average play it safe candidate. So definitely go above and beyond, get a little bit outside your comfort zone um, and really pitch yourself as opposed to saying, hey, I'm just going to play it as safe as possible. Hmm. And the it, second, yeah, oh, go ahead. Just a quick clarification on that. Does that mean that don't sort of sell yourself, sell yourself short? Is that, is that what you're saying or, or is that something else? Yeah, I mean, I think people try to sort of maybe round off their quirky edges to seem like a homogenous candidate. You know, I don't want to seem too crazy or out there. But one of the things I did in my cover letter for Apple is I talked about how when I worked in the nonprofit sector, I was so nerdy. I was known as sort of like the tech guy for all my uh, nonprofits that for Halloween, I actually dressed up as Excel man. <laughs> and I had this like recursive er- error happening on my costume. Oh, God. Um, yeah, that is nerdy. People said to me, oh, Jeremy, that's crazy. Like, what are you doing? But I remember distinctly my interviewer asking me about it and saying that would fit in perfectly with Apple's crazy culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's a very, very good point that do not hide these things which might actually make you special and make you unique. Totally. So that's the first one. The second one is a lot of time with tech for people on the outside looking in, they'll confuse research with progress. By which I mean they're going to spend all their time on TechCrunch and a million different blogs and they're going to read a billion things and they're going to feel so good at the end of the day. Ah, I'm ready for tech. Unfortunately, all that research is for naught if you're not actually applying, if you're not talking to people on the inside, um, getting those referrals and getting those applications in. And so I would definitely say like, I think it's one of these almost avoidance behaviors that humans have where we do the safe thing as opposed to the important thing. But even if it feels crazy to get out of your comfort zone and start applying for something that's totally new, just go for it. Like rejection as hard as it feels at the moment is actually better for you to get it now than to put it off and put it off and put it off. So if you're thinking about breaking the tech, definitely go for it sooner rather than later and don't get stuck in that sort of research bog. And then the last thing I'd mention, and this is something I've fallen into many times over in my life, is prioritizing prestige over fit, which is really easy in the tech space, especially given that there are so many sexy brand name companies. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about the company that your mom wants you to work at or your friend or your roommate. Think about the company that's actually right for you. You know, If you know in your heart that you belong in a really fast-paced, small environment, don't go for a giant company, no matter how great the logo is on outside that company. Um, make sure that it's the right one for you because you'll actually be more successful in the job and get more jobs based on that success than going into a role where you're just not a, not the right fit. So yeah. um, don't let prestige uh, mis, misguide you along the way. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the, the prestige versus what you want to do because I was literally just a, a few hours ago reading a post by Paul Graham. I don't know if you've read the, read yeah, the post. Yeah, very famous. Yes, where he talks about exactly the same thing, that go after what you really want to do as opposed to prestige because that's a trap. Um. Okay. All right. This is super helpful, Jeremy. I, I want to ask you, are there any resources that you would want to recommend? You've you already mentioned a couple for researching like tech meme, uh, but across each of the stages, uh, do you have specialized resources that you'd want to recommend for each job search phase? Yeah. So definitely, you know, breaking the tech, 
I give away pretty much 95% of my stuff for free in terms of here's a day in the life for all these different jobs, product manager, product marketer. Here's what the different companies are like. Here's the job search process. So that can be sort of a good strategic guide. Mm -hmm. When it's time for the rubber to hit the road, that's where, again, I think LinkedIn is right, not just for finding jobs, but also for referrals. And if you complement that with AngelList, you pretty much have access to all the jobs because LinkedIn is great for the midsize and above companies and AngelList is perfect for the startups. And then when it comes time to prepare for, for interviews, even though you don't want to slavishly prepare for just a handful of questions, you do need something to go on to have your mock interviews with your good friends who are calling you on your stuff. And a really good site there is the pminterview.com. Okay. And basically it just, it just gives you like probably 200 or 300 different questions across all these different categories, behavioral and cases and estimations, um, just to practice on, just to give you sort of a fresh uh, set of material to really uh, hone your, your interview game, if you will. And so I think if you sort of use those different resources at each stage, you'll find that you have more than enough versus going down that rat's hole of a million different blogs that ultimately don't add that much extra value. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. So so that's spelled as the T-H-E-P-M-interview.com? Yeah, that's okay. right. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Jeremy. This was truly very, very, very helpful. And I do recommend people check out your website, which is breakinto.tech. And yeah, any other parting advice you'd like to share either on breaking into tech or even just general career advice? Yeah, I think this one is probably specific to tech in the sense of the experience that I've lived myself, but probably applies to lots of industries, Mm -hmm. which is that it's easy to think of yourself as an outsider um, who's stuck there permanently. I always think of the kid sort of staring in the glass at Christmas time, you know, looking and fondly at the family on the inside is all cozy and warm around the Christmas tree. And you can really end up there for years and years because you psych yourself out. You say, hey, I just don't belong there maybe based on what you studied or your background or what have you. But at least in the tech world and probably in other industries, there's such a need for people from all these different backgrounds. Like The very best products ever developed in our space are collaborations of people from technical and engineering backgrounds, but also people from liberal arts arts backgrounds like Steve Jobs and Stuart Butterfield and Reid Hoffman who understand how humans think, how humans think. And so if you've got big ideas, if you've got a passion for this space, all I can say is please don't hold back. Please don't be stuck on the outside for years and years and years like I was. Know that there are ways in. Know that, you know that you're needed on the inside and go for it. Yep. Wonderful. I can't think of a better note to end the podcast on. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Truly, this was very, very helpful. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks for the opportunity, Sonali. And good luck to your listeners. Yep. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Just before you leave, do remember to sign up for our newsletter on our website, learneducatediscover.com, where we share updates on new episodes, a lot of career-oriented resources, and a lot of other inspiring stories and videos and podcasts that we find online. So do check it out at learneducatediscover.com. You'll also find the library of all the other podcasts that we've done in the past on the website. Of course, if you have any questions at all, or if you just want to say hello, you can always email us just drop us a mail at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. That's LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. Of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover or you can also subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, Bye-bye.